0: Welcome to the Rabbi Greenberg Show, the podcast that brings Jewish knowledge to you. Judaism is based on a written Torah and an oral Torah. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and God gave him the Torah, he gave him the Torah in two parts. One part was a written text that was dictated to him word by word, and the other part, which he had to transmit orally, was the interpretation of the written word. And that was Moses' responsibility to transmit it from himself to his disciples and from them to their disciples. And it would never have to be written. Only in the second century of the common era, because of the impending fragmentation of the Jewish community, the dispersion into the exiles, did Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi find it compelling to put it into writing in the Mishnah and later on in the Gemara, the Talmud, and so on. But originally there is a written Torah and an oral Torah. Now why do you need two? Because if you take the written Torah by itself, it's really unintelligible. It's impossible to really understand what the Torah is all about. For example, when the Torah says you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, mulacha, If you ask 10 people, how do you define work, you'll get 10 different answers. Another example is the Torah says on the holiday of Sukkot, you're supposed to take pre-etzhadar, a fruit of a tree that is beautiful. Well, what fruit are we talking about? What tree or what fruit is beautiful? You ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers. And I'm sure of those 10, none of them would say the etrog, which is what we use. Another example, an eye for an eye. It was never taken literally or a tooth for a tooth because the oral tradition says it doesn't mean literally an eye for an eye, it means the value of an eye for an eye. Those are the laws of the Torah. Then even the stories, the narratives in the Torah, you can't really understand them fully without the oral tradition. An example, Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, and they had children, at least Cain had and Seth had. Who did they marry? Well, the Torah doesn't say. But the oral tradition tells us that they were born with twin sisters and at that time that form of incest was permissible. So whatever story in the Talmud, in the Torah we're talking about, there is a written version of it and there's the oral interpretation of it, the second dimension. So we have two dimensions and nowhere is this idea more pronounced than in this week's Torah portion of Toldot. The story here is of Isaac and Rebekah give birth to two sons, twins, the older one, Esau, Esau in English, and then there's Jacob, Yaakov. And the way the Torah depicts Esau and Yaakov throughout biblical literature and in the Talmud and Midrash and in all classical writings and in Jewish tradition, Jacob is a saint, He's one of the three patriarchs. Whenever we need God's mercy, we invoke their memory, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in fact, Jacob is called the Bechir of the most chosen, select of the patriarchs. And Esau, Esau, is a scoundrel, is a criminal, is an evil person. That's the impression we get when we look in all of Jewish sources. But if you look in the written text of this week's Torah portion, you seem to get a different picture. You look at Esav, he's obedient, he respects his parents, and he seems to be the more refined of the two brothers, whereas Jacob gets his brother Esav in a time of weakness to sell him his birthright for a pot of lentils. And then at the direction of his mother, Rifka. He's willing to disguise himself as his brother to get the blessings, to appropriate the blessings that were intended for Esau. It doesn't look like Yaakov is really such an upright person. And Esau seems to be much more nebuch. He he got the raw end of the deal. That's if you look at the written text in dimension one. When you go to dimension number two, the way the oral tradition Explains what happened you get a totally different picture and this is the picture the day that Esau was a used deception to fool his father to make his father think he's a pious man. He would ask his father Ridiculous questions like how do you tithe salt? How do you tithe straw? Those things that don't require tithing, but he would act as if he's so pious he wants to do more than what the law requires He was a hypocrite because he only did this to deceive his father. And he indeed succeeded in deceiving his father. What happened on the day that he came to Jacob to ask him for the lentils that Jacob was cooking? So the oral tradition gives us a very rich background. There's much more happening over there. That day, why why is Jacob cooking lentils? Because the custom is, in those days, that you would serve lentils to mourners. And who were the mourners? His father, Isaac was mourning the passing of Abraham. And the very day of the passing of Abraham, the paragon of virtue, the ideal of righteousness and justice and, and love and kindness, Esau goes out on a crime spree and commits murder, rape, adultery, and idolatry. And here he comes from the field after committing these horrible crimes. and The very day that his grandfather passes away, he doesn't even come to the funeral. And he's very tired, he's weary, and he asks for the lentils. And look at the irony over here. The lentils are the symbol of mourning for Abraham, and just he wants those lentils to satisfy his his hunger without any sensitivity that this is his grandfather's day of passing, and he should try to live up to the ideals of Abraham, at least minimally, and instead he goes out and commits these horrible crimes. And he says, birthright? I don't need the birthright. He despised the birthright. That actually is written explicitly in the written Torah. But he has absolutely no regard for his father, his mother, his grandparents, and their ideals. Everything that he did was superficially good. He was a hypocrite. He was an evil person. That's the impression you get from the oral tradition. That gives us the true understanding of who he was And why Jacob and Rivka wanted to wrest the blessings from him because they knew if he gets the blessing, they would be wasted on a scoundrel. Whereas Jacob would take these blessings and the energy that they generated and use it for the good. My question here is, however, why do we have two dimensions? On the one hand, we know from the oral tradition that Esau Esau was an evil person, And committed all these crimes and so on, but yet, if you look at the story as it appears in this week's Torah portion, in the written tradition, you get a completely different impression. And there are still people today who claim that Esau was the good guy and Jacob was the bad guy. Why would there be such a discrepancy? The same question is asked about the eye for an eye. Why couldn't the Torah just say the value of an eye for an eye? How do you determine the value? Well, the way an insurance company, for example, would determine the value of a loss of an eye to someone who gets makes his living from his vision, a surgeon, or so on. So there are ways of, of calculating the value, the financial value. So why couldn't the Torah say that openly? Why did it t- say an eye for an eye, which is gruesome and, and ha- sounds horrible? And then we need the oral tradition to tell us that it doesn't mean that literally, it means the value of an eye. So Maimonides actually alludes to this question, and he says the following, that you're not really paying an eye for an eye. It's not as if your your eye was taken out, and therefore my eye has to be taken out, tit for tat. That's not what it means. Really, when a person does a horrible thing like taking out someone's eye, they deserve to have their own eye taken out. Why do they have to imagine their own eye being taken out? Because there's no way you could really appreciate the loss of an eye, of someone else's eye. You can't really give it a financial value. No matter what the insurance companies say, there is no value for an eye. No normal person will say, if you give me a million dollars, I'll let you take out my eye. So you're not really paying for the eye. What you're doing is you're paying for your own eye. You deserve to have your own eye taken out after committing such a heinous crime of taking out someone else's eye, so you think to yourself how horrible it is the thing that I just did to someone else. And God in his infinite kindness says you could redeem your own eye. So you're actually doing an eye for your own eye, but the way God allows you to get away with it is by paying for the eye. But you're not paying for the other person's eye, you're paying in lieu of having your own eye taken out. But how does that apply to the story of Yaakov and Esav? The written tradition makes it sound like Esav is the good guy, the victim, and the oral tradition makes it very clear that Esav was not a victim at all. He was the perpetrator of some horrible crimes. So we need a third dimension. The third dimension is provided to us by the mystical tradition in Judaism, the Kabbalah, the Hasidic teachings, that in truth Asaph while he was not a nice person, to put it mildly, he had a spiritual source that was so high, in fact, it was higher and superior to the spiritual source of Jacob. The problem that Asaph had was that even though he had this spiritual potential, it was something he couldn't access, he couldn't reach, he couldn't take hold of it and allow it to affect his behavior. He couldn't internalize it. In the language of Kabbalah, it was makif. It hovered over him. And as a result, he hadn't didn't have the ability to actually make him into a good person. It did have an effect, a superficial effect, that he had a superficial form of obedience to his parents, respect for his parents. But beyond that, his own spiritual potential was elusive. He couldn't really internalize it. Jacob had the ability to internalize his spirituality, but Isaac, Yitzchak, who saw his son Esau's spiritual potential, he saw that which is hovering over him, was hoping to help him internalize it. Rivka, Rebekah, knew better that it would not be possible, and therefore wanted the blessings to come through Jacob, who ultimately, through his influence, through his efforts, through the teachings of the Torah that would be given to his progeny, the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, that would refine the world to the point where in the Messianic age, even Asab's descendants will be refined because the spiritual energy that they possess will become in, 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 internalized within them. What is the lesson for us? We're living in a world where we have two dimensions. We have the dimension where a person looks at the world and sees the world in its veneer, glittering world, glamorous world. There were so many phenomenal things going on. There's so much celebration going on. There's so much enticing things going on in this world. And he sees the world in a very, very glowing form. But yet, Someone who goes a little deeper and penetrates beneath the surface, sees all the corruption, sees all the immorality, sees all the things that are going on that are that are of like So we have what we see on the surface, and then we see, when we go deeper, that it's a rotten world. And we ask ourselves the question, which is it? Is this world a good world, a positive world? Or is it, as many people will say cynically, forget about it, this world is just a horrible place, and it's getting worse and worse. And the truth is, you have to look at the world through the third dimension, the third dimension of the inner teachings of Torah, the mystical teachings of Torah, which tell you the world, what you see as the world that is cruel and immoral and disgusting even, that is the true appearance on the surface. When you see, that's the true beneath the surface, rather, when you see the glitter of the world, that's true. If you look superficially, you see this glitter. But the truth of the matter is, they're both true. The world has its horrible side to it, and it has its very glittering side to it. But what is its real essence? Its real essence is the spirituality that is hovering over it. And it's our mission and our task to take that hovering, that transcendent energy, that is above and beyond the world's ability to access under normal circumstances, and we bring it into the consciousness of the world. And when that happens, that is what we call the messianic age. In the language of Kabbalah, we have to bring the light of the world of chaos, powerful energy, chaotic energy, into the vessels of tikkun, of perfection, that we we, take the powerful energy, but we make it accessible to us, and we have the ability to internalize it. That is the way we look at the world from the third dimension, and that helps us understand why there's this dichotomy between what appears on one hand and what's beneath the surface, because the truth of the matter is that there's a third dimension, and that's what makes sense of these other two conflicting dimensions. Thanks for listening to The Rabbi Greenberg Show.